0: This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning this is the renaissance of men you are the renaissance
1: to create sacred art you must create something that speaks about the divine nature of how the universe is assembled Beauty is not just a superficial thing. Beauty is about how things are put together. Beauty shows us the bones of how the universe is assembled. Il concetto, or the concept, is the idea that the artist becomes a conductor for something out there in the universe. Then that idea, it's almost like a lightning bolt, and he's a a copper conduit that this energy passes through, his job because he's human and he lives in a physical environment is to put it out there physically with his hands, his head and his heart that's then the implementation of the idea into a physical reality and that carries his vision there are certain values that govern what is art those values stem from the fact that art comes from the human experience, and the human experience is driven by how the universe is assembled. And the artist takes that reference and creates something that stems from that sacred element, elevating other human beings and showing something that is representative of our potential as human beings. That's the value. you look back at World War I, it's the full stop of using the universe as the reference to create art, working from life. It's the end of that and it's the beginning of this modern era that speaks of the irony and alienation of who we are as human beings. So it's really interesting that now we're 100 years later, and I'm sculpting a 58 foot long bronze wall with 38 figures that goes back to a previous age and speaks about our connection to the sacred and the very fact that human beings are sacred. It speaks about the connectedness that all of us have to each other.
2: Hello, gentlemen. My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. There are a number of possible reactions to the statement about art that you just heard from my guest this week. One reaction might be, huh, I've never thought about art that way before. And if so, that's great. Having our eyes open to the possibilities of art is a priceless experience of being alive. Another reaction might be the one that I had when I first heard that clip which was to bow my head and give thanks to hear a man speaking truths like that in an era that seems determined to erase them. Because, as I think many of you will agree, we're in a sort of war today. A war of ideas. A war over the way we see the world and what we see within and through it. One of the most powerful windows into our world, into our hearts, and into our longing for meaning is through art. But it seems that most art today is designed to do anything but be a window into the beyond. Our music is vulgar and crass, our architecture boring, our paintings ironic, and our public art is often, well, a head-scratcher at best. Which is why my guest this week is more than a breath of fresh air, but a bright light through the clouds. His name is Sabin Howard, and he's a figurative sculptor and today's foremost practitioner of modern classicism, which seeks to bring traditional Western art styles forward into our modern day. His works are owned by museums and private collectors all over the world, and they've been reviewed positively by the New York Times, the Washington Post, Fine Arts Connoisseur, and many international journals. The New York Times called him, quote, a sculptor of immense talent. He has created some of the last decade's most substantive realistic sculpture. When viewing his works, visitors may be reminded of the time when Donatello and Rodin walked the earth. An American art collector said, quote, themes of transcendence and the art of possibility resonate in Howard's graceful yet powerful figurative masterpieces. So it's fitting that Sabin was part of the team selected to create the United States World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., less than two blocks from the White House, a bronze sculpture that's currently in process today. In a revealing and personal conversation, we discuss, among many other topics, the story behind the memorial and the technological and traditional processes that have gone into making it. Sabin's bicultural childhood in the US and Italy, and how they combine to make him the artist he is, how a bit of insight from his best-selling novelist wife Tracy transformed the memorial into something greater and more universal than he could have imagined, how failure can be a gift and a sign of the orderliness of the universe, and how that's come true in his life over and over again, and finally, why his war memorial isn't a memorial at all, but a piece to heal humanity. And before we jump into the podcast, I'd just like to highlight one thing. So many of our modern masters, like athletes and actors, make ephemeral creations. But Sabin is making a bronze sculpture, and bronze is not wood. It doesn't rot, or rust, or stain. What he's making today will outlive all of us, to tell the story of American soldiers and families for generations. I'd sincerely like to thank Mark Paczynski and Tracy for making this conversation possible. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining me on this journey as we welcome my 10th guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, Sabin Howard. Sabin Howard, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
2: You know, I'm really excited to talk to you because the Renaissance of Men brand is about so many aspects of classical humanism. Of course, it's about the Renaissance as well. And you're a man that has spent a lifetime studying these aspects and embodying them in art and sculpture. So I'm excited to talk with you today to make some of these ideas that I'm hoping to promote, to make them real in the minds of my listeners and the people who follow this brand.
1: Well, I'm ready for this conversation. It's something that is pretty much who I am.
2: Music to my ears. So I think the first question is, I'd like to start with getting a sense of your background, how you found your way into sculpture, into art, and what that process has been like for you over the past 30, 40 years, bringing you to where you are now with this World War I memorial.
1: I think it's always important to say something about where you grew up and who your parents were. So my parents were both PhDs. My mother is a first-generation Italian from Torino, and my dad is from the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I was born in New York City, but at age three returned to Italy and spent till I was three years old, My initial formative year of those first three years are really big in how you perceive the world Mm -hmm. in um, Milano and Torino, which are northern Italy, and then returned back to New York City, where I stayed till I was 18. But every summer I was spent back in Italy with my grandparents who did not speak English. Hmm. And so I became bicultural. Mm-hmm. Bicultural is more than just speaking two languages it's a way that opens up the idea that there are more than one ways to, to skin a cat mm-hmm. so you don't have you have more problem-solving skills than if you just speak one language the other aspect of this was that i i was turned on immediately to the beautiful visuals of tradition and then in opposition to that you you're thrown into this 1960s, New York City anti-Vietnam, anti-establishment, uh, poor people's campaign that my my dad was all about at that point. And so that was this world of thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. And it made me a very rebellious person, and that I am not one to follow the herd. And I really do kind of think outside the box, because if I had gotten into art when I did at 19 and thought, Oh, I'm, you know, could I, is this going to work? You know, that's just, you just can't do things like that. You have to just go. Mm -hmm. And so there's a naivete there too, obviously, when you don't know the whole situation of what could be,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: that was the initial stage that led me to, you know, age 19, I began making art. And before that, I really was, um, uh, aimless and dysfunctional, and all the good things that you know a teenage <laughs> years will bring to you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I uh, I was not aimless and dysfunctional as a teenager, I spent my 20s being aimless and dysfunctional, so <laughs> I think we all have to find a, a period of time in our life where that happens so that we can begin to reassemble ourselves or assemble ourselves into something
1: meaningful in the first place. Yeah, very much so. Um, I, I wanted to be an artist as um, a teenager. And I I saw all these amazing sites like the Medici tomb, uh, Notre Dame, the Louvre, Uffizi Gallery, because uh, that's what we did in the summer. And I was dragged around as a teenager, very rebellious. But in, there was a moment that, you know, um, I was in the Medici tomb and I I was like looking at the uh, architecture of, of this building. And I saw the figures that Michelangelo had made in there. And there's this, this cupola with this light that comes down from above. And I, I was doing woodworking in high school and I saw this amazing site and I was like, this is really interesting. I was kind of floored, I was 14. And it planted a seed. And then I went to 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 um college for a year, dropped out, and I got a job <laughs> in a wood shop in Jersey with a bunch of really disreputable guys. Got laid off in six months, uh, six six weeks actually. Mm. Uh, first guy in the door, first guy out the door, and then I I was like, oh, you know, I got to do something here. So I got a the yellow pages out and I started calling all the wood shops in Philly, where I was at that moment, and I got a job in South Philly where um, I went in Monday and I think I was getting paid two dollars and forty five cents an hour,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and so this guy was going to apprentice me to make cabinets, kitchen cabinets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And what he had me doing was sanding all day and putting wood in this like 50 gallon drum to keep the room warm and and sweeping up. Mm-hmm. So by Thursday, first day, I was like, kind of like, well, it was four o'clock, October 19th, 1982, actually. And it was one of those moments that, you have where it's clarity, great clarity. Hmm. And I walked over to my boss and I said, look, this is just not going to work out. And I, 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 I'm sorry. And he said, well, you know, I've, I hired you and you got to stay. It's started to try to convince me. And I was like, no, it's just not going to work out. And he goes, well, I'm not going to pay you then. Mm -hmm. And I was very rebellious. And I said, F you to him. And I said, said, well, I don't keep your, $44 $44. And I walked out the door. <laughs> I went to a pay phone and I called my dad collect and I said, Hey dad, I know what I want to do. I want to be an artist. And he goes, how long is this last?"
2: Thanks dad. And
1: yeah. The next call was to the Philadelphia college of art. I knew this was art school on broad street in Philadelphia had this big Doric, columned classical building that I had walked by. On the way home, and I called the school. And I said, "Could I speak to the admissions department?" They patched me through, and I spoke to this woman. I said, "I'd really like to go to art school. What do I do?" And she said, "Well, do you have a portfolio?" And I said, uh, "What's a portfolio?" <laughs> and, I'm, and 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 she said, "Well, look, it's four o'clock. Why don't you come in um, and I'll I'll chat with you and we can talk about this. You seem very interested." So I go over there and we have a brief conversation, and she offers me a book that I should go get, which is called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Thomas. Oh, wow. I leave her office. I go to Joseph Fox bookstore, a few blocks away, I pick up the book, and I go home. I open a book, and I read the first chapter, and I start the exercises after about 45 minutes. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I, it was, it, it was uh, part of my brain had not ever done this activity of drawing from a reference
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it's like walking if you don't fire those engrams in your in your brain they're not functioning and it was but i realized immediately this is what i have to do i have to practice this and i had this athletic background which brought me already like this great gift of knowing that if you want to do something you have to practice it over and over and over again so you become just flowing. You go into flow state. And so after, you know, I did the, the practices where would where you set up something on the table and then with a, a pencil and a pad of paper, I would draw and I I I set up my schedule where I was doing construction and I, I would work very, you know, full day from, from 6 a.m. to four. And with the commute, get home and be drawing by six and draw from six to nine, do it all over again. Mm-hmm. So after three months, I had nine new drawings. I went back with my sheets in a cardboard portfolio, and I mm-hmm. went to see this lady, Jan Baltzell, and she's like going through them and, and looking at them. And she she goes... She pulls out 10 and she says, this is your portfolio and you'll get in. And I said, how do you know I'll get in? Because I'm the director of admissions. (laughs) Excellent. And here's the part that's crazy. I do not believe the world is or the universe is set up in a system of chaos. I believe it's set up in a very orderly fashion. I ended up in a school that had it was the epicenter of a renaissance recreation of how the figure could be seen and translated into art from life and there were four teachers that i had walter earlbacher and martha they were a couple and tony visco and harvey citron walter was the head guy and he'd come out of germany he'd gone to the bauhaus school and he was a, a jew and his whole family had been decimated by the holocaust He'd ex- he had escaped to brooklyn and he was teaching at pratt and And Martha was a student, and Martha was a painter and and a draftsman, and Walter was a sculptor. And Walter was like St. John the Baptist coming out of the desert, and he was a a pure, the real sense of the word genius, because he went back and he looked at Leonardo's notebooks, and he looked at the anatomy notebooks of Polaiolo. Polaiolo was an anatomist out of Florence prior to. Leonardo. And he took that information and then, with Richet, who was a French academic person from the 1800s, began to construct a systemized armature. And the armature is what holds up the clay. And the armature was articulated in proportion to the same scale as the human skeleton. So when you looked at the model, you would translate each of the movements of the joints by degrees of motion. So, for example, like your hip bone, a trochanter bone. You have rotation, you have abduction and adduction, you have flexion and extension. So these are three movements that you would have. And then the the body was broken down into these masses that came from the German artist, Dürer, Mm -hmm. who was the Renaissance master from Germany at at the time. I was in Martha's class after in sophomore year, and she said, listen, stay after class, This is the fifth weekend of a fifteen-week semester, and I want you to chat with me for a minute. So everybody's left the room, and I'm like, "Oh my God, what's going on now?" <laughs> what I do now? Yeah, yeah, I was obsessed anyway with the figure. So she goes next Monday, and her class was Friday, ended at five. Next Monday, you show up at Walter's class, and I'm like, "But, but that's junior level, and I, am not, I'm not supposed to go till next year. So just be there." At 8:30 precise, here's the list of what you need for the class. But I'm I i have not been the first five weeks. She goes, yes, be there Monday. And but I don't know what, what, how I don't know this stuff. And she's like, All right, you bubba Bubby, you need to be there. Show up because you don't get it. Walter's not gonna be there next year. He's got a commission. I'm not supposed to tell you this. He's taken the year off. Mm-hmm. And you need to be in that class. Oh wow. Pushed forward to his class. Took his class. And it was the beginning and the foundation with her. And the first year that I had Dante Catani, somebody who had studied in the twenties, how to draw. I received an education that is non-existent today. Mm -hmm. It is gone. Digital stuff, the cell phone, the dehumanization of our world through technology did not exist back in the eighties. It the boob tube was the worst thing you could have. Mm -hmm. On Fridays, you had like people phoning into a radio station, picking the song of the week, Mm -hmm. Van Halen's, you know, Panama or jump. It's a different world. I did not have a computer till I was 37 or a phone. And the, the way that I learned was the way that people learned 500 years ago with clay and your hands and metal tools or a pencil and paper and setting things up. So it was completely visual. Mm -hmm. So my brain got set up differently than kids do today. And I'm eternally grateful for that. And it's really upsetting to me because it's something that has been taken away from us in our development from a young age. And right now I have one kid who's 21 in my shop who's working, who has some potential. But he dropped out of the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts because it was such a crap education
3: mm-hmm.
1: then just usurped by nonsense. So I am a very strong proponent. I taught for 20 years at the graduate level until till I got into like art. And then I got into this very esoteric thing of making male sculptures. And everybody said, you can't make a living selling those. And sure enough, I did. It was my education for I have 75,000 hours of working from life models over the last 38 years. That is the difference.
2: That's incredible.
1: I'm sorry to be a run on sentence. No, no,
2: no, no, please continue. Like this is, this is the kind of thing that I think people need to hear as they need to understand you. I think you said it very well. You said the universe is fundamentally orderly, which I agree with. We may not always be able to perceive the order, but it's there. And looking back, we can see the order in the way that looking out or looking forward, we can't. But once we have the glimpse of that order in our lives, we never go back to being the same again. And that order manifested in your life. in it sounds like a cabinet maker shop where you had this moment of clarity that I got to get out of here. And you got a call into this art school because you hadn't shown any sort of level of that focus or discipline up until that point. And then it just manifested out of you almost as if by magic to get you through a window that was closing. And now, and now here you are. And people need to hear this stuff. It's really important. This isn't fantasy.
1: It's constant. And it's the, the thing for artists that, that I was lucky. I mean, I went through two marriages until, and the first one was somebody who supported me while I learned how to do this. And, this, mm-hmm. and then I had Tracy. And Tracy was the also the next catalyst for developing a a, a vocabulary about how do you speak about Human psychology through energy. And how does the morphology of the body, how the body looks and its posture, how does that tell the story of the human being? So if you look at a painting like Leonardo's Last Supper in Milan, each one of those disciples has a specific gesture and tells a specific story about that person and what they're doing. And so there's this visual language that I I got from all these this time with Tracy and my work with models that just starts to stack on top of itself. And then, so what are you going to talk about with your art? So there's like three levels of art making. There's like, first one is I I like to call it the nuts and bolts, learning your craft. Mm -hmm. The next Mm -hmm. one is like emulating your masters. And the third one is speaking your language and your vision. So you cannot get to three until you have gone through one and two. Mm-hmm. And so In this world where everything costs more than it did last week, you're kind of like in a pickle unless you want to go underground and, you know, survive. And I, when I was going through this, like emulating my masters and learning my craft, I worked from life models and life models back then were $12 an hour. Now they're like, you know, 25 to 30. Mm-hmm. And so how would somebody who's not with a trust fund, how would that person Proceed in this education of, of, and you can't learn it unless you do the time. Mm-hmm. It's a very long time. Tracy's saying, point out that I did not have a trust fund. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I did not have, yeah, I, I've also, meeting my current wife, learned a lot about, you know, the, the whole aspect of being married and the the relational aspect of a man and a woman. and. We I certainly and had to learn a lot about that mm-hmm. through prior mistakes, and we we met a doctor. Gottman and julian dr uh, Julian John Gottman that are amazing in terms of uh, relational help uh, and how men and women need to treat each other in a marriage that that also is part of the whole road. Mm-hmm. So being you know, a, a working, functioning artist, is not just making the art, it's it's multidimensional.
2: That's right. You have to be a, a whole human being, a whole man to produce your highest art. There are, yeah. of course, there are examples of, of individuals who burn twice as bright and burn half as long. But when you're dealing with a uh, figurative art and sculpture, your excellence is determined by the number of hours you can get in studio. And you're not going to spend 75,000 hours if you burn out by the time you're 27. You know, it's not quite like music in that way where you can make one big hit song and tour. Like if you want to compete with the greats of all time, you gotta accumulate hours. And if you're gonna accumulate hours, you have to be productive for a long time. And if you're gonna be productive for a long time, you have to be healthy on all the levels of being a human being and being a man. These things are not separate. Yeah, very much so.
1: Also the ability to um see that you need to change mm-hmm. and go to the next thing, which I am a very stubborn creature and so habit. I'd like to do the same thing day after day. So it's like, I did all these figures that ended up in a sculpture of Apollo that was completed in 2011. And it was a, a male nude that I just wanted to do something that competed with the David and the the, the male nudes of the Renaissance.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I had a moment where I was sitting in the foundry, looking at this bronze that I had done over a two and a half year period. And I was like, I did it now. What? So I got, a, a, a gallery. I got my own gallery in Chelsea, New York, right on Eighth um, and Twenty Twenty First. Huge spot with all glass windows, and I blew it out with lighting so you could see it two blocks away. <laughs> I showed all my work there, and I thought this was going to be this moment of truth where I moved to the next level.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was funny. I was sitting in a. I had. I gone to grab a burger in at a, at a bar, and it's it's a gay gay neighborhood, and Um, I'm eating dinner at the bar and there were all these guys and we're like having this discussion. Did you see that gallery with those male nudes in there? That's incredible. That artist is finally doing something right for the gay community and doing male nudes. And I was like sitting there taking this all in. I didn't say anything, Mm -hmm. but it was very interesting because I realized that my approach to making male nudes came from a completely different aspect of seeing the male nude as coming out of the Renaissance and and not about this homoerotic thing that's going on today. But it was it's so esoteric what I did. And I didn't make this giant splash with the Apollo that I thought I would, but it opened the door because eventually Frank Gehry called me for the Eisenhower Memorial and flew me out to California to his office to, to be the sculptor. That didn't work out, but it planted the seed for the concept of like, what's the next thing? The next thing is to do public art. Because you need a big platform, you need people to to see it. And what I was doing was selling three bronzes a month, two to three bronzes that would go into private residences, and then nobody would see them except those people that owned it. So you're like Sisyphus pushing pushing you know something up the hill that would constantly roll down to the bottom. And so the application to the World War One Memorial came, and that that is what truly changed my life in a huge way artistically.
2: It's perfect that you brought that up because I would like to get into that. And, and I would just like to say that the men that listen to me and the men that I know are profoundly interested in the subjects we're talking about. Subjects like craft, subjects like excellence, subjects like beauty in the male body as expressed through fitness, proportion, yeah. mathematics, yeah. order, family, uh, happy, positive male, female dynamics. The men that listen to me, and these are my personal beliefs and the men that I surround myself with, are all very much interested in these subjects and are seeking to embody them in their lives. I'm very proud and very honored to have met men like this, and I'm excited to introduce them to your work because I think they need to see it specifically embodied in this World War One memorial, which I'm really excited to get into. It's a beautiful piece. Let's talk a little bit about how that particular piece came about. I know that you met a, an architect who designed the the public space, and then you jumped on board his team, and then so just walk me through that of how of how the <clears> whole <throat> concept came to be from kind of from the ground up.
1: I got called by uh, Justin Schubau, who runs the uh, Civic Arts Society in Washington. It's about the continuation of classical in the the environment. It's pretty much an anti-ugly movement to make things that are uplifting architecturally. So he said, hey, you should enter this. And so I phoned around a bunch of architects and I ended up with a guy out of San Antonio was a classical classical guy, Michael Ember. And we did a project submitted, but we didn't make the final five cut. That was the final. But I, my back of my mind, I thought, you know, this is not over. There's something here. And I don't know why, but and on September 14th, um, three months later, I received an email from this Joe Weishar urging me to um, in a moment like this to join him in partnership. And he said, I need a sculpture. Would you be my partner? And he was a young kid, 25 years old. Mm-hmm. And the reason that he'd been selected was because the park committee, the plans that he submitted for the park, because it's not just a sculpture monument. It's a park, urban park that sits in the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue, right by the white house a block and a half from the white house mm. by the Willard hotel. And so you have an urban park that was built in the the 70s by Friedberg. There was a sense by the Centennial Commission, which were the commissioners that had put this global project competition together. And there were 360 teams that applied. And Edwin Fountain was one of the commissioners and he really wanted something traditional and sculptural. And he told Joe Weischer that, hey, I want you to go out and find a sculptor. Joe went to the the, you know, the yellow pages of, like I had 20 years, 25 years ago, yellow pages of information today, Google, any Google classical American sculptors, August St. Guns came up and he looked at him and then he realized August St. Guns is dead. <laughs> so then he went to national sculpture society and he went through a list until he came to my name and it had been reversed. He, I was at the bottom of the list. It was Sabin Howard. It, he sent me the email and he said that if he could sculpt, this is exactly what he wanted the sculpture to look like. And I was thrilled. We went to four meetings. I put together drawings. And we made a plan together, presented it. And I, I knew by the second meeting that we were going to win that. And that was at the end of 2015. So now we are 2020, almost 21. And I'm in the middle of making it. So this, By the time I'm done this project, it's an eight-year ordeal. Wow. And I was not ready for it. I came in as, as somebody who was very interested in esoteric classicism, doing the male nudes. That's why I brought up that long story. Mm-hmm. But that was what got me prepared for this. And when this project began, I had to go to the next level and change my art. I stopped looking at models as still things on a dais and started looking at figures in motion. So, what I did is I used a cell phone. And I took the cell phone to photograph the figure as they would move. And I had actors from that. I got um, from my daughter who said, Hey, call this guy. And that guy knew this guy and this guy. So I gathered these guys in the South Bronx, which was my studio, and I, I ran out, went out and rented um, from Massachusetts, these world war one uniforms that were real uniforms a hundred years ago. And I uh-huh. dressed them and I started taking pictures. And that's how I started the project with Joe and presented it And on 2016, January. Tracy and I were sitting in the car waiting to hear. And we won. And I remember I said, holy shit, we won. And I said, now what the hell am I going to do? Because I knew already then how big this was and how much. I'll give you an example. The Eisenhower Memorial took 15 years to go through before they started doing something. Wow. We went fast. We went really fast. and. I put together my first iteration, and it was a jumbly mess of figures that I had photographed and stitched together. And I took the the train down to DC first meeting in April of 2016. And I got torn and a a new asshole Mm -hmm. (laughs) the commissioners. Pardon my French. It was like, hello, this is a real it was this is stepping into a whole different world. This is not a game. Mm -hmm. And I, over the next nine months, between March, April, almost all the way to November. I did 18 iterations Mm -hmm. of the same story. And towards the end, Tracy was sitting at the breakfast table with me and she said, hey, you know, you're doing Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Your narrative is The Hero's Journey. And I was like, oh, what's that? (laughs) The literary one, I'm the visual one. And she explained to me that it was a story that, was in every single place of the world, every time frame of the world, every culture, every society, in its own form, and it's a story about how a man goes mm-hmm. on a voyage to faraway lands, is transformed in this, let's call it adventure, mm-hmm. and then returns home to pass this information back to his his culture. And that's mm-hmm. what this final drawing that I did which was called A Soldier's Journey. And it's a fifty-eight foot long bronze wall with thirty-eight figures that um tell this story of a soldier that leaves his daughter and family and goes to war, enters this bloody animalistic combat in the middle of the scene, and then after the cost of war war exits that um transformed forever and then there's the parade home and he ha- and the last scene is him handing his daughter his helmet and she's the next generation she's world war II. Mm-hmm. and this in some ways is i guess it's autobiographical because i had to go on my own voyage because it was it's been a very hard trip and just like that the the protagonist in my sculpture, you do not go to the next level unless you go through the shit. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that is, if I have one thing that I can pass along to your listeners, it's you need to have a system of dealing with the disruption that happens in your life so that you can see it as a lesson and take the lesson and grow. That's the only way that you get to the next level. It's, not easy. And I think that what stops people from proceeding to the next level is fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of failure, and the consequences of what happens if I take this chance. If you do not take that chance, the world will take the chance for you and you will be crushed and rolled over by the steam engine. You can take the chance and escape the steam engine and change your course or your trajectory but that's not for everybody. And it requires thinking outside the box and thinking that you are not alone and you need to feel that you belong to something bigger than yourself. So the sacred, and I'm not saying religion, but something larger than you needs to be part of your consciousness to get there. You can't do this on your own. And so my life has been filled with between my, my wife, who has taught me a lot, and the art that, that is what I am connected to, because I play it forward and and my my daughters and that is what helps me get to the next place
2: i love that you touched on this and i and i want to come back to specifically the themes of the sculpture in a minute but for now i just want to point out how timeless and how eternal and how powerful the hero's journey is and we started the conversation out by talking about there is order to the universe and as far as we can tell the hero's journey seems like one of those things that is part of the eternal order of the universe as far as human beings know and we can see this reflected in in the sculpture that you're doing and the, the narrative of the soldier going off to war and coming back i can also look at that and i can see that that was the story of western civilization in that particular moment in the history of world war one specifically that war which is so not understood very well at all in america especially compared to world war ii so it's 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 manifesting on that level on that social level of a, of a nation it's also manifesting in your life, where you've gone on this journey of you got involved in this project with a, a World War One memorial a block and a half from the White House. and it's taking you on a journey. It's still taking you on this journey that's taking you across to New Zealand. Uh, I heard in one of your talks about, it, but also there's the drawings and the and the encounters with the uh, the committees and then the the manufacturing of the models and the and the bringing the models in. just how much it's challenged you. Going on this hero's journey, so it's manifesting in in real time in your yep. life, and it it manifests in all these levels simultaneously, personally yep. and collective.
1: Yes, I, I've had to deal with confrontation. I I hate confrontation, and I've had to learn to be able to step up and say, "Hey, this is this is my side. This is what I what, and that's not easy. Mm-hmm. And you get to a place like DC. And whatever you've heard, multiply that by a thousand. Wow. It's so bad because the people that I dealt with had no souls, were gray. And my values were so different in many ways. Not all of them. Some of them, obviously, but a large part of them, this whole system of bureaucracy is, uh, it really attracts people that want to be taken care of, that wish to be in a committee and a herd and and I am I'm not a fan of politics. I grew up with two parents t- looking and, t- and squabbling about politics every night at the dinner table. This was their religion. And my religion is not. It, my religion is art.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so now these days you get all this stuff about politics and art. And I'm like, keep your effing politics out of my art. Mm-hmm. And I think a piece of art that is, in, in some ways, it's really highly unusual because I went through all these committees and I fought for my vision. And I used some pretty serious terms at tables where it was like, well, you gotta compromise. You gotta do this. And I was like, I never changed my mind. Mm -hmm. I didn't compromise. I didn't change a damn thing. The only thing they got me on was they made me make it smaller than I originally wanted to. I was to make it seventy five feet. I got down to they got me down to Mm sixty. But I, I just, I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And if you don't like it, I'll walk. Mm-hmm. I, you can go beep yourself. Wow. They wow. said that at the table with the clients and they, and one guy goes, you went nuclear and then you reined it back because they saw they couldn't like steamroll you. Mm-hmm. And, and if I had given in, I would have created a piece of shit because you can't, you cannot, like make art democratically you have you have to do it holding on to your vision and i'm saying that if if you are not all artists have the same excellence and it's, this is really a problem today in the arts yeah. and all over society there is a hierarchy of excellence and i want to give one example would you go to a basketball game and watch a bunch of like losers like basically throw the ball and just hit the backboard would you do that of course not No, of course not. Why is it in sports, okay, you go see somebody like, you know, the greatest Michael Jordan, somebody who is the hierarchy of human excellence in that field of basketball. Why is it that now all of a sudden it's like all this like disruption and you're not looking at the real deal of people earn their right to be excellent in their field and they have the right then to speak up and hold on to their vision. And that's w- the way I went into it.
2: And I think that's the way you have to go into it to create beauty. Beauty yeah. beauty it succeeds right. and exists because one man or one person or one woman is willing to fight for
1: it. Yes, very much. And, and it's, it's all those years of being in a dark room with models, with all the, the windows covered and with artificial halogen lights bouncing up on the ceiling. You don't know what time of day, what season it is, what the weather is. You have massive, complete focus on your task at hand, and everything else is gone. Everything else is not there, and it's a form of meditation. It's like the Buddhist monks in the temple doing what they're supposed to do, and, there, and there's no deviation from that track. So that's, that is what I believe is necessary to achieve something, and there is a cost, a cost where you have a sensory deprivation from all these things that are basic to me entertainment to me life is not about entertainment it's about arriving to something that is of value of having a purpose that is what to me life is so this is you know a very age-old philosophical ideal of hedonism versus you know having a single task at hand and unfortunately, we're pushed off that track all far too easily with our cell phones these days. Oh, absolutely.
2: The, the yeah. lack of ability to focus, the, the need to yeah. constantly be attending to communication demands from friends or entertainment demands or distraction really yeah. takes us away from appreciating the, the transcendent.
1: Yeah, it's really dangerous. It's created a bunch of people that are unfortunately not what they could be.
2: Everyone, to some extent, experiences that. Some people have it worse than others. Certainly, I experience it in myself. I've been reading this book. um, I think it's How to Keep from Losing Your Mind by this author, Deal Hudson. And uh, are you familiar with this book?
1: Yeah, I saw it. on. Yes, I've read a few things from it. I have have not read the whole book, but yes. I just
2: finished it uh, a couple nights ago. And it was a, a wonderful trip through uh, beauty, truth, and goodness, and, and these three disciplines to understand how they can really ennoble the human being. And I'm reading the reading the book. I'm reading it every night. And ev- it seems like every night, the next night when I pick it up, the following night, I've forgotten everything that I've read before. Like I'm trying to drink deeply of this spring, but it's like, I feel like I'm drinking, but I'm just like dribbling it down myself, sort of metaphorically speaking. And so I'm experiencing this. Like, what's happening with my brain? My brain didn't used to work this way. How can I create space in my life to get my brain working? like my brain is supposed to work yeah 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 i want to touch on how you create space for yourself to open up to these degrees of inspiration because you talked about you're in this you're in the dark room you've got the halogen lights and you're sculpting and and in one of your talks which i'll link to in the show notes you mentioned how uh, how also when you were in these committees uh, you were being pressured to compromise on your design a little bit maybe you need to have to include horses or or tanks or something like that, I think you said, and you were really struggling because that's not your background. And then a a voice communicated to you during a a pretty key moment. I'll let you tell that story.
1: You know, so then it's 2016 and January, I win. And then April, I go to Washington. This is a whole new world because I'm going on the Acela. First of all, that's like a that was high-end back then for me. And it's not that long. It was four years ago. Um, so I go to, and I am I get off at Union Station in Washington, and I'm like massively euphoric. And I see all these classical sculptures at the train station. And I'm like, I'm talking to my guides in my head and saying, here we go. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling the cart forward. We're going to do it. And I get to capitol building and we go through the shuttle underground shuttle and i meet like will cotton among all these a few senators the people from arkansas the senators and it's like this kind of like false flag all of a sudden my status has been elevated let me go to these committee meetings would you please do this would you please do this and there's like I'm not kidding you. Like over 300 people coming at you from all these different meetings telling you what to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so if you were to listen to everybody, you're going to your, your, your brain starts to get a scrambled eggs. Mm-hmm. You don't know where to go. And you're like, I'm in a whole new world where I'm like supposed to be in something as an artist. And I still don't think I'm anything as an artist. I have a very weird dichotomy of thinking like, I really suck. Like every day I think I'm, I, I'm a miserable failing artists that I can't get it right. I wish I could sculpt as well as Bernini. I'm doing this one head of this raging soldier in a battle scene and I'm looking at Bernini sculpture and I'm like, yes, that's what I'm supposed to do. And it's like, Oh God, I really failed miserably. And this happens every day. And at the end of the week, it's like, I'll have three minutes of like feeling great success. And then I go back to my miserable state of failure. And I guess this is good because I'm always like then striving for where I want to go. And I'm very hard on myself, but so I'm in my studio. I've returned from these meetings, and I'm like, I really don't know what to do. And I'm, I go to my bathroom, and there on the wall is the poster of the Last Judgment, Michelangelo's Last Judgment. And I hear this voice in my head, "Do what you know." And I look at the poster, and there it is: all of humanity, all tied up in pretzels. And we're all the same. We all meet our maker. We all go through life and then death. We're all mortal. That moment told me to go back. And I started drawing and I started making the figures three-dimensional where they would be like forms that advanced and receded into space. And they created overlaps and the sense of depth, even though the relief didn't have more than 20 inches to it. Oh, yeah. That was the moment of realizing, do what you know. And then I went back to the meetings and I was starting to gather steam. And then I went through the 18 iterations and every iteration became more three-dimensional. And I, the way that I work, which is different than I think a lot of American artists, I don't know, but I i, I think it might be, is that I have this sense of belonging to the Renaissance hmm. and to Those are my teachers. So I will look at all the art that is like sparks my imagination. I've always done this and I'll take a pose. I'll take a composition and that's my launch off point. And I go to the models in the studio and now I'm working from life and I kind of start there and I try to recreate that. But then I, it swiftly starts to transform into something else, but it's the launch off point. Mm -hmm. And so it's like playing something forward. It's a connection to something, like I said, that's way bigger than myself. i got another example of that. I went to this museum at the bottom of Italy and there are these two bronzes that were dug up out of the water by a scuba diver. He saw like a, a arm sticking out when he was scuba diving out of the sand. In, um it's Riace, which is uh, between Sicily and the, the heel of Italy. And, and these two bronzes are in this museum. And I walked in the door and, and saw these, that's all that's in the room. And you see these bronzes. And I was like, I know this guy. This I know this guy who made it. And it was 2,000 years ago.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I, have, I had this instantaneous connection. Because what he was doing then, the way that he constructed the figure abstractly, taking the skeleton and geometricizing the masses of the body, and proportioning the bodies in this specific way was exactly the way that I had learned 2,000 years later. And then I also, I cast in bronze. It was like this dialogue. That That's what I do too. And it was like I knew the guy because we shared this craft and this intellectual task, which is highly
2: physical. You're the inheritor of this 2000 years tradition that you're bringing forward, that you're really bringing back. Because I know that uh, World War One was the beginning of this great alienation in Western culture. I look at it as this enormous betrayal, especially of masculinity, which is a whole separate conversation. And we're still yeah. dealing with the after effects. But starting in World War One and moving into World War II, you, you stop having figurative art and you start having cons, uh, abstract, conceptual art, ideological art. Uh, You know, pushing a political agenda visually and all these other different themes. And now here you are, and this is the spirit of the Renaissance of men. It's like, let's go back to a time when they actually appreciated different things about men than we knew today. And now you're doing that in sculpture, maybe not, well, also with masculinity, particularly in the sculpture, which I, and one more, which I want to get into. But you're feeling this tie to this sculpture from 2,000 years ago that's animating you in a new way.
1: Yeah, very much. The the, the sculpture shows men not all of them, there are 38 figures and seven of those are women. And here I, I'm going to lay it out very clearly. Mm-hmm. What I think would help our society if men were more male and females were more female. <laughs> I agree. The problem being is that I have no fear of being masculine. Absolutely none. And there are traits to being masculine that are very, very important for females as well as for males. It's you are obviously stronger than females physically. Mm-hmm. So you need to be a protector of females. You have to be respectful of females. Females in, in Italy have there's this cultural thing where women actually have a lot more power than in Italy than you would think. The, the, the man has the head, does the task, the female points the head in the right direction. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
1: And the, me, the male tries to please the female and in so doing creates a bond. And then this whole idea of listening to your partner and her problems are your problems, is critical in a marriage, because you cannot create a sense of like, well, I just need to take care of myself, So as soon as you do that, you've exited the marriage. Mm-hmm. You're not working as a symbiotic relationship. So in this, and I'm saying all this stuff because I've I made a sculpture that talks about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. either they're children, eleven year- olds. There are men in all forms of emotion, from e- extreme anger and violence to noble protectors and honoring females. There is massive strength in heroism and bravery in the females. There is not any sense of isolation except one figure. And that one figure is the soldier returned from battle. Transformed. He's a representation and an allegory of the world and America and how it was transformed in this conflict. And he's also the father transformed away from his family who has passed through this massive conflict. But then he returns home to hand his daughter the helmet. So I have two daughters of mine, and one is with Tracy and one is with my former wife. And Tracy had two daughters. So I have grown up with four daughters. Mm And my, my older daughter is a doctor. I encouraged her to be a doctor. She went to be a social worker. And I said, Julia, why aren't you why aren't you going for it? Why are you going for the bottom of the pile? Let's go. Go for the top of the pile. My other, my daughter, who's 15, is very powerful. She does, she knows it, but not yet how powerful she, she will be. And Tracy's kids are also of the same elk. So there's this sense of like all these things that I have had in my family life are put into the sculpture because that's what I know. And then all the cultural elements that I grew up with seeing the art in Italy, that's emblazoned on my unconscious mind. So I have a a Pietà scene. I have like a walking St. John the Baptist scene, like the Rodin piece coming out at you. There are pieces from Raphael, the painter. Um, There are scenes from the battle scene of Leonardo Michelangelo's there is not a single figure in the whole composition that is not taken from some sort of reference unconsciously. Mm -hmm. So I'm playing it forward, but I never intended to copy something. It's Mm -hmm. just, I am a one trick pony. That's what I am. I don't know how to do anything else. (laughs) (laughs) It's a, it's a pretty special (laughs) trick. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's like everybody has a niche. So you need to honor the niche. And and it's the same thing with and I'm I'm re- reverting back to what how we started this conversation. Male and female have to honor that niche that they have. You can you cannot be better in the other sector. You are what you are. And so you need to be proud of that and to work on yourself and to honor the other side as well. We are two different species. Mm-hmm. I guarantee that
2: yeah. oh yeah i agree i agree well, and also it's it's significant that the the missing piece of the sculpture is that you brought you brought so much technical skill and expertise and passion and work and physical strength and and discipline to make yourself into an artist who achieves uh beauty at the level that you do, and when you're constructing the the sculpture the world War one memorial, the missing piece was provided by your wife in the form of the yep. hero's journey and how yes. and how incredible that is and how beautiful that is like how symbolic that is that you bring all this and then you're you're the head going in this direction and then your wife taps you on the shoulder like okay no go that way and then the whole thing kind of crystallizes together and it was that piece alone wouldn't have been enough but without that piece without that one single element the whole thing is is completely different
1: yeah yeah very much i didn't i didn't make the the figures at eye level i made them 38 inches above the ground so you're looking up into them. And then I, because it's a relief, it's taken from the perspectival drawing and the drawing is um, taken with an eye level that because uh, it's about knee level. Your eyes, you, if you were looking at the figures, your eye would be at their kneecaps. So you're looking up into the figures. So perspectively, the upper parts of the, the figures are smaller proportionally.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And mm-hmm. I transferred that to the sculpture So it plays with the proportions of a figure in reality. And so it's perspectival on the relief. So you have a lot more depth and scale because of that. And so this is part of what I believe art is. It's not real. It is the art world. It's separate from the real world. And it's working and living and and existing in the real world. We look at what we see around us and through our education. And this is what our perception of reality is. that's That's the key. The education allows you to see more than is actually there. And it lets you see deeper than you would actually see if you did not have that education. And then that gives you the information to create your art if you have the technical chops to do it. And you translate it, you transform it into an art. Mm -hmm. And that's the vision. It's not this one to one thing where we have moved into now the camera. That's already a translation. And it's it's a low class translation because it's not human. It's a mechanical object. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And so that mechanical object cannot hold a candle to a human translation. Our brain is way more powerful than we ever give it credit. Mm -hmm. Um, It is more powerful than a computer. It has more options and it has more ability to see what it is to be human because there are more than just five senses in our translation of reality. A computer is very mechanical because it's all mathematical, Mm -hmm. it's all code. And so that code is nowhere near as deep as what it means to be human. And so that is what has been taken away from the art world today. And that's what my goal is, that's what my dharma is, is to put it back in the art world today.
2: Well, so you're on the highest level of the art world in many ways
1: today. Um, that's kind of you to say that. I don't feel that way. <laughs> I, I just work like a freaking bastard and I'm very stubborn. And I, I went after this project and I, I'm very lucky that I got it. And it's a great platform because 5,000 people a day will see this sculpture. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> as far as we know, that's significant. But that was not something that came easily. And that's, I think, one of the things you got to think about. is like you got to have a vision and you got to stay on that path and keep plugging away day after day.
2: Absolutely. That's, that's the way excellent is achieved in a craft or in a sport or in a business or in, or in anything that's worthwhile yeah. to, to the human is that you do it every day with total focus and commitment with the vision. Yep. And then you trust yep. the higher order of the universe to bring yes. that vision about because it doesn't just come about through sheer will alone. It comes yep. about through will and execution and really being lucky isn't really the word. So blessed is more of the word because luck implies some amount of chance. And I don't know that there's always chance, but it's kind of like I, I, have earned the, I have earned a gift. You know, those two notions are kind of contradictory to achieve that level of success is truly a gift and you earn the gift, but a gift means it's voluntary. So I think that's the paradox yep. of, of, of excellence.
1: That's a key word you used, voluntary, because, and let's go back to chance, because you're given chance every day, but a lot of people won't grab the chance, and that's up to free will. So nothing happens without human relationship, Mm -hmm. and business is all about human relationship and exchange of energy, because money is basically just energy and exchange of money. So if you, you have to become really open-hearted, and that takes courage in in meeting people and creating relationships because you don't know you get in a river and you don't know where that river is taking you and and you meet might meet 20 other people from one stream and then from those 20 people you meet and that's how I got to this project because it was like I did this one sculpture and I did all you know well I did 25 years of sculpting. Yeah (laughs) there's that but but then I did that show and then I did this book launch. And I, I mean, I was honestly the consummate hustler because I would never give up and a hustler in a good way that that I I was not trying to rip people off. I was trying to go, go, go to hustle, to, to go to the next thing, to meet the next person, to find the spark that would happen. And that's, I think we make our own luck.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Through, through our effort, we sort of create this pressure wave behind us. This feeling of momentum can really, you get moving with it and suddenly it carries you to levels that you would never have been able to achieve simply
1: on your own own intellectual will. Right. And the whole concept of a client or commission for an artist is, I didn't believe this before, but I was pushed into territory that was very new and forced me to be more creative than I would have been if I hadn't had a client that was saying do this and I was like well that's just crazy and he was like well I like it so you're going to do it and I was like all right I'm only gonna work my way through this so I didn't throw out his idea I worked with his idea and I worked it into the composition creatively and then all of a sudden it was like I was doing things that were very um disruptive and hadn't been you know seen so like for example you have these giant movements and then you have these spaces of emptiness and then you have this one figure the thousand yard stair figure coming directly out at you and it stops all the movement. And then it's like, you have another movement behind him of this like cost of war that rises up on a diagonal all the way up to the highest point, which is the flag, Mm -hmm. the parade scene that's in front. Yeah. Yeah, Edwin fountain was the the main commissioner Mm -hmm. of the commission. That was really the chief protagonist in, in this creation of the, I guess he was like the, person would say, well, I like this. I don't like that. And so you need the flexibility to, to kind of like not give them a stiff arm.
2: Right. And I think that's one of the things that isn't obvious about really being a high achiever in some ways is you have to have certain degrees of, of flexibility, but also you have to be inflexible. You have to be so committed to your vision and your integrity and your values. And at the same time, have to be able to bend and flow with the times and these things all sound like enormous contradictions in fact they are you know they are like, volu- like voluntary and gift uh flexibility and commitment like these two things they would they would seem to be in opposition but somehow we have to live them and we were also talking about men and women like yes there's there's an essentialism there's an essential nature to a man an essential nature to a woman but we can't necessarily live in that fixed way we have to be able to flow with it like you telling your daughter that she should go to the top of the he can be a doctor, you know, so there's there's some flexibility in living. And these principles are still true. We don't know, but we have that's the journey of being human is to figure out how to live this stuff in integrity with ourselves in the moment.
1: That's very deep. That's very deep what you just said. You should do a podcast. <laughs>
2: that's a good idea. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> yeah. well,
1: that's I don't want to say anything. That's very deep what you just said.
2: No, well, well thank you. I, I I was thinking about these things as I was looking at your art. So these are the gifts that we give each other. Thank you. Yeah. And and I wanted to talk about specifically the art within the World War One memorial, because I teased out so many themes that you're elaborating on that have been part of your life. So just in considering the content of the sculpture itself, um, which I'll link to in the show notes so people can see it. They obviously can't see it right now. But there's themes of masculinity, duty, honor, fatherhood, the hero's journey, obviously. A sense of a narrative and sculpture of a beginning, middle and end. There's this notion of transcendent values embodied in the hero's journey. You've got patriotism and Western values of humanism and classicism and transcendentalism and figurative sculpture. And then women playing a supportive role to the men as well. Like all yeah. of these things embodied in the sculpture, all of these ideas are so inspiring to so many men, but are so verboten in so many ways today. And it's yeah. amazing to
1: this in this in this artwork. Thank you for saying that. If I, if I were to explain one of the big things that happened in the creation of it is that uh, after I came out of doing the, the, the Apollo sculpture in 2011, I was really shaken. Um, I was like, nobody gives a crap about what I'm doing. And I felt really kind of like down. And I stopped sculpting. I started drawing, which is very weird. I started drawing a lot. 40, 50 hours a week and drawn for 15 years. And I started getting really good at the drawing and that drawing then was the way that I got the competition, how I, I won it. No because I presented all these drawings and that was my way of then taking the drawing and moving into a relief form. And, and so this is kind of like, I went to a format then of, I got to make something here that people are going to be interested in. I just don't want to like die. And I was doing okay. You know, I was definitely not dying as an artist. I was supporting a family, not like on giant money, but we were not going under. Mm -hmm. Every month I brought in what we needed. It was not going to hit a level that I dreamed of, which was also making a difference historically. And I came up with the idea that film is what everybody gets. And so I made a piece of art that is cinematographic in that you are now, as you arrive at this 58 foot long sculpture on the left side, you walk along it and the scenes change. You are an active participant in seeing how the, the, the story evolves. And I knew that that would get people really excited. And then I put in that walk of looking at the art emotions that go range. Through, oh, you have a, a right next to somebody who's screaming Then how old do you go to the next figure that is like in a Pieta or a dead scene, six feet ahead of it and it's quiet. So now this is like a piece of music where you have the, you know, the cacophony of the symphony. And then all of a sudden you have quiet. So it's like our, this is our reality where we close the gaps with, we don't, it's not all there, but the music, the notes continue and you hear things that are not there. You, you close lines, you close areas. And so I started to look at this as a way of showing all of us, meaning who we are as a race, um, a species through this piece. And so it's not, case is secret. It's not a war memorial. It's a piece to heal. Yes. To me, it's not about the exaltation, the exalt, you know, exalting guns and male power. No, no, forget it. This is about healing humanity.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And So I'm sneaking it in and I, because I was such a stubborn bastard in all these commission meetings and we got through, the Commission of Fine Arts, which was completely against it, I snuck something in this real art in an area that is filled with lately all this corporate committee art. And so this is again very disruptive. And so my plan is with my wife now to is we're making a documentary. Documentary is called Firestarter. I'm a Firestarter. Mm-hmm. I have a kind personality, but underneath that is like very disruptive individual that wants to make things right. And so I made this piece of art because I, 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 I felt I had this mission in my twenties that I said, I'm going to make Renaissance art. When I started drawing, I was like, this is, I'm going to, I'm really good. Wow. And I was like young. And then I went through this giant path and I got beat over the head and I kicked in the ass and the nuts. And I've been on a journey that would kill most people mentally, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: but it's made me very tough. What is that toughness? It means I still have the courage and my heart is still open. That is what is really, being strong is not about yelling and being able to be more powerful than somebody else. It's about having an open heart and having the strength and the courage and strength physically and mentally because the two go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And so this piece is about that. And so I look back at pieces like the Sistine Chapel or the David and the Medici tomb, and I see it, I am looking at somebody like Michelangelo as my hero. And okay, he did that. I've read every book that I can possibly find about him. And he what he went through, I have gone through. And with all the corruption and the committees and the the clients and the workers and the design teams it's really a voyage mm. and so it's, <laughs> this is not i'm not doing this alone in my studio i'm doing this i have a crew of two other sculptors and we have all these models and Tracy's run the admin and it's just not this is not for everybody but it's the only way that you can accomplish something that will affect many people and I really wish to make a difference. This is very important to me.
2: I know the feeling.
1: It is very, very important to make a difference. So I will not sit idly by and go along with the agenda that is handed to me on many levels.
2: I'd like to speak for myself, and I'm sure that there are a lot of men listening to this right now who just wish to honor you in that, because what you're doing is very brave. And thank you for what you're doing, because it comes across in the art and the sculpture that it's not a memorial, it's not a celebration of war. It's it's a it's a time and place to grieve, to experience that this is what it was like for the men. This is what it was like for our civilization, for our country to go into this experience. And this was how it changed us, and maybe not necessarily for the better. And we need to look at that and understand the, the ramifications of that 100 years later. Using this classical art form, how can we tell this? It's a story that's a hundred years old, but that's also timeless. Using a visual language from the Renaissance that we've lost, how can we tell the story in, 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 in an old visual language that speaks to our hearts?
1: Yeah, the language of actual unity. So it's not about creating tribalism. Mm-hmm. It's about creating unity. Because if you were to X-ray a African American man and a Caucasian man, x-ray, you would not know the difference of what their skin color was. Their skeletons would be the same. Mm-hmm. So grow up people, it's time to stop doing this separation. It's ridiculous. It's, it's absurd, actually. And it won't get you anything but more fighting. And guess what? You're just being puppets for somebody else who's driving a much bigger wagon that you don't even know about. That's what's really sad Mm -hmm. that what's happening today has nothing to do with what's happening today. It has to do with people that hold tremendous power and wealth that are manipulating the media in a way that you think you're doing something. So make the world better. No, you're not. You're being fooled. You're being duped. Mm -hmm. And it's really sad. It is education is what, what will make educating yourself and I guess the other thing I wanted to say to you and whoever's listening to this is the whole concept of being responsible for yourself rather than pointing your finger at what is around you is what will get you where you want to go because then you have actually a purpose. Being responsible for who you are helps you get to where you want to get and it helps you be a good person in the community, in a, a good person in your family, in a good person with the relations that you meet. Car- carrying forward integrity is critical. And that integrity means to be self-responsible. So you put yourself where you are at this moment. Nobody else did. Mm-hmm. Everybody else can say, oh, well, you got this problem. You, you know, everybody has problems. Every No matter how rich you are, how poor you are, everybody's got problems. It's the human condition. There's no such thing as being more privileged. We all have the same fucking deal of having to die. You're not getting out of it. So it's time to think about this society and species as being more unified than more separate. And also to honor your culture. And it, it's the same. So these are in opposition. But it doesn't mean that your culture is better than somebody else's culture. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you want to throw out one culture and burn the baby with the bathwater and throw out all of Western civilization because it's yours as well. You don't need to like throw it out. It's your heritage. It's everybody's heritage mm-hmm. and it has a place for everyone. So, I mean, that's as far as pol- politics, that's as far as I'll go. I've
2: traveled a bit and I've been to about 33 countries around the world. So I've had the chance to experience lots of different cultures from the inside out really, and spent a lot of time in these countries. I could have seen more countries, but I wanted to really grok it to use the word. And yeah. that was a very transformative experience for me to understand what all these cultures have to say to each other, what they all yeah. what they all have to contribute to the conversation and that they yeah. all have something valuable to contribute and they all have something different to contribute and some of them overlap. And I, I think what's getting lost today is what you're talking about also, is that amidst our different cultures, there are universal human values that are getting lost in the, in the tribalism, in the enforced tribalism, in the focus yeah. on surface characteristics, which do have a, they, they do have a significance, but they pale in significance to the universal human conditions of love and death and loss and growth yeah. and transcendence. And we're losing all sense of that and how, how transcendent it can be for a human being to really connect with these universal human values.
1: Yeah, I like Jordan Peterson very much. He said once, and I I really love this. Why wouldn't you have massive neuroses and anxiety? We're all going to get, you know, some sort of disease. We're all growing older. Our parents are going to die. We're all going to like have this horrible, tragic, terrific stuff happen to us. Why wouldn't you be neurotic Mm -hmm. and anxious? It's like part of being human. (laughs) It's like do the best you can to create community and 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 have a sense of sharing rather than separation. Mm-hmm. And I I'm saying this very fact because my project of the World War One Memorial is dwelling into that concept because I'm not saying that a hundred years ago things were better. They were not. Absolutely. They had their own problems. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I feel was thrown out with the entry into modernism is the idea that there is a sense of divine order
3: mm-hmm.
1: and that means the, the sense of a God existed then and that's not the God of the Bible perhaps only it could be a different sort of order. Mm-hmm. It could be the way that the universe is so incredibly divinely designed. That's what it is for me mm-hmm. the, the, and it comes from the it stems from the Renaissance and how magical. The fabric of construction of the human body, the skeleton and the muscles that are filled with energy that spiral around this architectonic solid. That is my Bible. Mm -hmm. And that beauty of the universe and the woods and trees and nature are my source of inspiration. And I belong to that. And that is very healing for me. And so, this project, I use all of that. As a way to put together almost, you know, like you look at a Ducati motorcycle and you see the trellis, which is the frame or the structure of it. Mm-hmm. And it's on the surface. And that is, I'm making this analogy. It might seem very crude, but that's what makes that bike really beautiful because mm-hmm. its its structure of how it's put together is right on the surface. And so great art. To me, figurative art and this sculpture that I made is very much in tune with all these underlying structures of geometry that I found in nature through my countless hours in that dark room with the models looking at them. And I've transferred that into this construction of, and that's how all these figures blend into this single dynamic composition that is one composition when you look at it from a distance and then you go up close to it and you can have the intimacy of each of those individual parts, each figure, each head, and each one of those little parts, hands, anything you pick has its own hierarchy. So you have this multiple level of sections that fit within larger sections. And this continues on for, you know, section within section within section, all in unity and flowing. So energetically, you don't have any points where things go wonky and go awry. And so that's my way of healing. Mm -hmm. And that's not what war is. Mars is the opposite of this. And Aphrodite is the opposite of Mars. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at it from a different perspective here. Mars is the unbalancing of male aggression, whereas Aphrodite is um, love and unity. So you need a balance between the two. Mm -hmm. And this is what this composition is about. And that's why it's not just men. And the females in the composition are equally as heroic as the men. And some of them, the females stand out as much as the men. In fact, in the initial scene, uh, the Heroic Mom is one of the largest figures in the whole composition.
2: Mm -hmm. And when I said the women have a supportive role, I guess I didn't mean like they're secondary characters in the narrative. Like they're not on the battlefield. They're obviously affected by the narrative that's going on and they have a significant presence. But there's definitely an order of activity, I guess you'd say, in terms of the main focuses in the battle and the conflict. And the secondary focuses on the impact on the family and the home, which is just as significant and powerfully felt, especially in the very end. When you have, yep. when you have the, the figure of your daughter looking at the helmet, like this is your inheritance and, and the real impact of that of like, oh, wow, this is the effect of this carries on after the narrative has ended. And now we have to live with the consequences of that.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: I think what's so powerful and healing about uh, great art and also nature is that we live and Jordan Peterson, I think, would probably agree with this. We live in a society that's to some degree chaotic today. Yeah. And um, what is really healing about great art is that once you learn to see into it, you see the order behind it. Like your, your sculpture, there's the geometric order, there's the narrative order, but within it, there's the higher order of healing, which is perhaps more difficult to kind of draw in a, in a, in a drawing, but that's the fundamental order that's going on behind the scenes that an individual engaging with the piece can feel. Yeah. When we look at sculpture, you as a sculptor can perceive the order within a figure that an average viewer might not be able to see but can feel and from watching one of your videos understanding how a sculpture that you put together from clay differs from say something 3d printed because something 3d printed lacks that inner structure it's just the solid Mm -hmm. figure versus a sculpture that you put together in layers has that inner order I wonder if you could yeah. talk more about that because that was so interesting to me because I don't know that I could spot
1: that difference. You just this easy way to like translate that to so you you get it like on a on an easier level. If you look at really the most beautiful women, who do they use for models? They use women that you see their um skull underneath the skin. You're not aware of it, but it's the the ability to see the skeleton underneath the surface. And it's the geometry that presents itself on the surface. So what I'm doing is I'm sculpting, how do you say, inside out. I'm taking what I know and I see on the surface and I'm accentuating the separation of how something is built in the skeleton and how the skeleton is actually moving. Now That's the architecture of the figure. So, when you look at it that way, the figure is almost like rectilinear solids, like rectangles. So, each of the body parts are moving and oriented in space in relation to each other. And this is really amazing. If one part, if you're just standing straight up and down in a reference position, and you move one part of your body, let's say you bend your knee, now you bend. Let's say you bend the right knee, just like an inch and a half, that's going to tilt your pelvic block. So now your pelvic block is going to be lower on the right side. So as soon as that happens, now your ribcage to maintain the balance is going to tilt to the left. And then your head's going to tilt a little bit to the right and rotate a little bit. So there are all these like little movements occurring to maintain balance. And- That's what I'm looking at. So that's what I learned from Walter Erlbacher when I was like 19. And that's kind of like the, that was the structure that I got in on. So it was an education. It was an education of actually to change my perception of reality. And that's a great lesson because that's what happens in everything. All subjects, all, everything, no matter what you're doing, your education changes your perception. So you can pick up the little cues that make you an expert in your field if you are in your field long enough. And that's amazing. You stick with it long enough and
2: you start to see things that someone who's new at it wouldn't necessarily pick up on.
1: Right, Right. And and, and, and the way that I look at the surface then, okay, so I'm looking at the skeleton and I'm, uh, the whole surface I'm analyzing what I'm labeling it um, in two ways. Everything in my observation of um, life is translated into convexities. Okay, so you have convexities and concavities. A convex object is something that is pushing out. Concave means it's punched in. Mm-hmm. So because we're human beings and we have a soul, we have this internal pressure, it pushes out. This is an analogy. It pushes out from the surface. So I map out the whole surface uh, with linear tools, and then I begin to apply clay to the high points. And then each of those individual high points are specific, like bursting with life forms that expand outwards. It's an analogy for who we are as human beings we expand outwards, we mm-hmm. push out. A machine digitally doesn't do that because it doesn't have that translation capacity. That's why I said in the beginning, if you're going to work from photographs or the computer to do figurative art, you're kind of like missing the boat here because you're not like seeing the world through, you know, the perception of human eyes. You're seeing it through a digital translation. And so this way of mapping things out and then translating, okay, this form and a form is usually if it's a muscle, it begins in an assertion and it'll peak. And it'll go to an origin. So this is very scientific and medical, Mm -hmm. but it's also very, it's a great way to look at what you're seeing so that you are now deducing what you are looking at. And you're not just doing it on feeling alone. You're doing it with scientific data, empirical knowledge, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so then you take this, which is the information stuff, and you work on this craft long enough, and now this stuff's unconscious. I don't have to like go, okay, that's what I'm doing. It's like already, it's like I'm zipping through it mm-hmm. and I've, I can spend more time in the craft of the emotion, the emotive part of the, of the sculpture because I have, I have never mastered, you never master, but I, I've become confident in my application of analysis of the human figure into this grammar. That's why when I got into art, I was like really lucky. I had never had an art class in my life and I had no idea there was such a thing as modern art. I thought there was Raphael, Leonardo, and Michelangelo. How dense I was! Inside mm-hmm. It's like, and, and this naive thing of being in isolation is was beneficial in the fact that I I didn't enter into art thinking that it was all about the book about the art and the the, the concepts. I thought it was about art being visual because that's what I had learned as a little kid in Italy. Mm-hmm. Then growing up in the 60s and 70s in New York City, I was like, you know, hey, do your thing. Do your thing. Don't listen to the man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. was really different. It was like, go, go down, your, do your route. Stay your course. And not, I, it was very different than today.
2: Do you feel like your, and I wanted to ask you this earlier, do you feel like your rebellious New York spirit, New York in the 60s and 70s spirit, helped you protect that commitment to classical Renaissance style of art when you began to encounter artistic trends that were very much in opposition to that?
1: Yes, absolutely. I would say that New Yorkers, we're we're called assholes for a reason, that we're very opinionated. Mm. I can't wait to leave New York at this point. (laughs) Right. But there is a sense of my way is the best way kind of thing. New York, when I grew up, was not a clean, generic city. Mm-hmm. It was filled with, I mean, I remember 1981 going, I was in 12th grade and we went to a uh, Elton John concert in, in the Great Green, um, this lawn, Delacorte Oval in the 80s in Central Park. And it was a dust bowl with with garbage blowing all over the place. And um, it was just garbage central it was really but it was it had a liveliness in some ways and i'm not trying to romanticize it but it was it, it 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 had more of a full spectrum of people rather than what it had become afterwards oh i remember um seeing some films
2: of new york in the late 70s and early 80s you know taxi driver and stuff like that and you look at what Times square for example used to be and to go to Times Square now, which is like the center of consumer capitalism on earth, probably, you would never imagine that it used to be a drug den and prostitution and, and, Seed. and garbage. Seedy. Yeah. Yeah. It was a completely
1: seedy, disreputable area. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, and you know, I also was, I grew up in a, New York City. It was, I left the house and I was constantly watching my back with this paranoia about who's going to jump me today. And I, it was just a really different place than, and I don't think that's actually healthy. You know, <laughs> you know, no. The sense that you're going to, and it's coming back. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's an off topic thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I tons of questions about that. Well, my dad's from Brooklyn. Oh, wow. And so yep. I've been, a, I've been several times throughout my life. I was just in New York, actually about a year ago right now, believe it or not. And just I can remember times I remember seeing the World Trade Center and, and you know, looking up through the, the roof of a, a taxi or something like that, or maybe it was a bus and just looking up at these enormous buildings. I'm like 12 years old, you know, and I remember that very clearly. And I just remember and I've been able to perceive the changing of New York quite a bit and maybe not in all great directions now, but certainly as it's become less New York and more like New York TM, you know what I mean? It's become yes. more patented. But you were able to take that Spirit of yourself yeah. as a young man, and and also this really unique experience of being exposed to incredible art in in yeah. Italy as a child, and how incredible that you were able to, to fuse them together. Most people don't get that opportunity. Maybe it was your your destiny. I guess you might say.
1: Yeah, I've been really lucky. In every every turn of the way, who I've met, um, and and what the next thing has happened, has been a constant progression of, of this one path and maybe that has been also my choice because I've had often the choice of being able to step off the bus. And I, 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 I didn't, I didn't deviate the temptation to, to have a different life is often, you know, but I was a rock climber for years and, 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 and then I still stayed on my path, but deviated slightly, but I didn't, go to school out in Colorado. I got into Colorado Boulder because I love nature and I'd been, I grew up in the Alps in Italy and, but I decided to take this other path and see the East coast. And it was all because I was supposed to stay on this path. If I'd gone out to Colorado, I'm sure I would have become a ski bum (laughs) and a rock climber and Mm -hmm. had a very different life, but I didn't pick that route. Mm -hmm. And this is not, it's, it's been a choice of like, like I said, I didn't choose happiness in this life. I chose to be a person that followed a purpose. Well,
2: that's a certain kind of happiness, for sure. Like that's a deeper. The word happiness is is yes uh, very thin compared to the word fulfillment.
1: Sure. Yeah, and I, I I but I don't think it's it's pleasant. That's maybe what <laughs> I'm suggesting because right. right. the rewards may be much larger in some ways and more um, meaningful. But the the journey is one of transformation, and that's transformation. Like giving birth, is that like pleasant? I don't know. That's like, you know, (laughs) that's kind of like the metaphor that I like to use because I've seen it happen a few times. It's painful as heck, and it's like change doesn't occur. You don't change because, oh, yeah, things are really like chill and feel good. You change because things feel bad. Mm -hmm. So you hit avoid or you hit like this massive disaster and that's when the change occurs
2: can you share one of those times through your history with sculpture where you hit massive disaster and you had to oh wow what am I going to do with this
1: I brought it up a couple times doing the Apollo sculpture Mm -hmm. and having worked in this way of isolation and doing male nude figures for I'd say like almost nine uh, eighties eight mid-eighties all the way till 2011 wow Um, you you know and i was you know doing fine and then you do this show you think you're going to be like the next jeff Koons or something Mm -hmm. and then you hit you go flat and then you got to make rent and 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 pay health insurance and and pay for your studio and it's like i'm every month i I always hit it i always hit my nut Mm -hmm. but it was very very hard and I, and I, I learned a tremendous amount about business in this process, and the re, the relationship that you need to cultivate clients, and how do you maintain um, a business? Because that's what an artist—if you are making art—how you can, can't just make art. Mm. You the time, so you need to make get the the funds to get your butt into the studio and pay for your models. These are all logistics It, that require executive function. And that's like, that's a hell of a ride to be on. Mm-hmm. If you have, you might have like mad skills, but you don't have any mad skills in, in, in making money. I had to learn all this. I was a massive failure in my thirties in terms of like $25,000 a year in my thirties paid for models and stuff. But that's like, even at today's standards, that wasn't a lot of money. And then I, I learned how to do this from trial and error. And it's just, the whole thing is always you're going to get a bump and how are you going to react? That failure is a gift because it offers an opportunity for the next thing. And it's never pleasant. It's, it just sucks. <laughs> yeah. And, and you might, you might get like a, I had a massive back injury in my thirties Oh, and it gave me the gift of, I I I had three discs that fused in my lumbar region and I'd always been an athlete and I was um prostate on the floor, couldn't move, frozen and from I I did not get an operation. I I rehabbed myself with yoga, ashtanga yoga. I was doing an hour and a half of yoga a day. I put myself back together over the next five five years and got into running and was running 35 miles a week and, you know, continued my athletic approach to life. And so that was a really, a shocking moment to like, you know, all of a sudden you're like hit with something like this and you can't move and it hurts so much. You're nauseous. Mm -hmm. And then your, your marriage sucks. And I left my marriage after 17 years with like a plastic bag, shopping bag, and was not, doing so great I it was like you know couch surfing from place to place and within two months I had amassed eight teaching gigs and then I got myself a motorcycle and was moving from place to place and it's like figure it out don't just sit there you're not a victim grab the bull by the horns and that was always my my mentality with all these things that I got hit with and I'm not done I'm sure I'm, something's going to happen next week
2: <laughs> well that's that's the hero's journey manifesting again. Like you're at the very bottom of the, of the hero's journey arc where you're really forced to confront some form of dragon, whether it's you know being homeless or, or only her- having a, a shopping bag full of stuff and being on your own and leaving a marriage, like you're gonna have to confront a dragon and it's either, you're either gonna slay it or it's gonna
1: eat you. Yeah, it will. That's a very hard thing to do. I think a lot of men who have faced a divorce, I really, my heart goes out to you because yeah. it, it's horrific. Truly, it is a death. It's a moment that you really have to look um, at yourself in a deep way and say, OK, what's working and what's not working? And I had a moment where I, I finally got myself an apartment and I got the living room set up in a studio and I made these three sculptures. And I'm the, that was the beginning of really my journey, journey with Tracy. I made a sculpture with a man just standing there, just looking directly out and it's called man and it's a reference figure. He's like a warrior. He's just looking directly out and it's taken from the Vitruvian man of the Renaissance, which is just a very direct frontal view of a male. And on one side I made um, a figure of anger, which is similar pose, but the, all the arms are going back into the body on the hips. And it's a closed energy system. And on the other side is arrows and the, the arms are going out from the body, just open energy. And it mm-hmm. was the beginning of understanding of the choice of opened and closed energy and the choice of free will. That was back in, oh my God, it was that 2000. Yeah, that was 2000. That was the beginning of this understanding of the, the option that you had of being open or closed to your life.
2: Do you think that artists can make art of experiences that they haven't had?
1: Um, Am I supposed to be blunt on that one? (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) You don't have anything but your experiences. So it's this parallel of life and art. And so whatever you have experienced is what will come out in your art. And it is what you know. And it is what you know best. And so the experience that you have in your life is your unique individual experience but how you show it in your art it's best that it's universal so that other people will understand it as well otherwise it's not going to go anywhere right and the whole concept of renaissance art is fascinating to me because if you look at where are the longest lines to see art they are by the Uffizi, or the Academia, or the Vatican Museum. Mm -hmm. You have a line that is five blocks long in the summer before this C-19 happened. And Mm -hmm. it's just incredible that that is still what people consider to be art. And they
2: line up to see it. The longest line I've ever seen to see a work of art is obviously the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. Not that it's necessarily all that stunning of a piece of art once you actually get a look at it, but still it's from that same
1: period. Yeah, you you know it's art.
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So that's something there. And and that comes from human experience. All the art that was made in the Renaissance, it wasn't just fabricated out of whole cloth. It was made by each of the artists' individual experiences. But it was universal. That's the message. Because everybody still wants to look at it 500 years later.
2: No, because they see themselves personally reflected in the universal, which is created by the personal artist, art's no. personal experience
1: that's a very 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 important thing for for people to remember that you can make whatever you want but it's not going to go anywhere unless other people understand it mm-hmm. and that understanding is the universal mm-hmm. it needs a vocabulary that is understandable
2: comprehensible to the viewer from in a language they understand and you mentioned that in one of your interviews as well that when people look at modern art and modern sculpture, it doesn't speak in a language they can understand. It's communicating on some conceptual ideological level that maybe they can feel architecture yeah. does this too, but they don't speak that language. Yeah. It's sad.
1: One of the books that I really was influenced heavily by was Susie Gaplex "As modernism failed. And I read that back in 81 or 82. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was a, a manifesto about don't throw the baby out with the bath water so you don't throw out all this stuff of the and and try to recreate art forms from your experience. It's always a playing forward of the Western tradition. It's because it has so much depth to it. So it's like I, this was one of the big things for me. It's like, why would I try to reinvent the wheel when it's been invented? I'm going to take that wheel and then shape it with my individual experience. To make an art that is in that vein and in that tradition, I think that's really um, healthy for for human beings to build, feel like they belong to history, so the, i'm very confused with the concept of rewriting history <laughs> these i I think that that's highly dangerous because it's actually it eliminates culture and I'm, a, I, I'm very tied to culture because it is the place that I feel ties me to the divine order of the way the world is built. Mm -hmm. It's not just this thing that was done many years ago by, you know, a power structure. It actually had a significance that is, if it's, but that's the thing. Education is education and who's doing the teaching is sometimes not doing the teaching. Maybe something else is going on. And that's a very sad and dangerous thing today.
2: Mm-hmm, I agree, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so moved by the the memorial piece that you're working on. Is that it's a volley in a in a war, in a cultural ideological war, in a sense, in that it's it's pulling down these higher values of beauty and transcendence, and the hero's journey, and masculinity, and duty, and it's a memorial of a war in a war. You know, it's yes. got this med, and I and that's what it's like. Oh, yes, thank you. I can look at a piece of a sculpture, contemporary art and be inspired by it and relax in the presence of something beautiful on the surface that my soul recognizes on a deeper level. And that it meets me when I, when I go to meet it.
1: Thank you. It's a homage to the sacred. Um, You will be able to see it. I'm hoping at the end of 2023, Hmm. the spring of 2024, and the unveiling is still, I, I'm still like busting my butt. I'm in figures of the battle scene, which are, we finished 11 figures so far. Mm-hmm. I'm 38 and all, so we're in the middle of the, the next section. By next September, I should have the next nine figures done. So that'll be 20 figures down. And then I have 18 to go. And it, it, I'm using a foundry in the UK, Pangolin Editions, which is in the Cotswolds. So we have this... Um, very interesting breaking down of the clay sculptures, packing them into these sea containers that are picked up at the studio and then brought to the port of Newark and shipped overseas to the Cotswolds where they are then opened um, there and molded and the casting process begins. And we're documenting this whole epic, crazy voyage of the creation of it, Tracy and I. With um, Paul, our model and cinematographer in studio, so it's that documentary will be coming out in 24 to show how this was done, and I don't think that's ever been—I don't think that's ever been done either. It's like has a national memorial, the process of its making, and an intimate look into the artist's like studio and life been shown publicly. A lot of the values that we talked about in this great podcast will be in that documentary because I want, and this is me sharing and wanting to make a difference. I don't really enjoy having somebody filming me all the time. Tracy's a storyteller, so she's in charge.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's a great story. Not, Not only the awarding of the sculpture to you, but also the process that you've gone through to create it. To get the yep. models and, and the, the, the involvement of technology I found was really fascinating to go from drawing into the technology and the sculpture, and then the whole international shipping ability it's an incredible cool. story
1: yeah it's and it's like you wouldn't think this is the way that you would do something it's not the usual way of doing things this, the whole thing is like uh, if I hadn't had the help of the digital to get through the grunt work of it mm-hmm. I mean this would have taken me a lifetime, so maybe this the technology is interesting because it offers me an opportunity to actually get through something in four years. It might've taken 15 to 20 years before oh, yeah. then it affords me the time to do another one because <laughs> I would like to do something even larger next. So what's larger
2: than that? Like what sort of thing do you have in mind?
1: I don't know. I don't know, but I just know that I, am not done yet after this. I think I'm just getting warmed up. I feel like I really, my education of how to do this took me to like this contest. And then I started what I was supposed to do in my life. And then now this opens the door to like a whole new arena of like possibility. And I don't know what's going to slam down my way. I I just, I don't know what's, I never know what's coming next.
2: Mm -hmm. I don't think
1: you can predict.
2: Your job is just to do the best you can with what you've got in front of you right now and let the rest take care of itself. Yeah. Yeah. But well, where can people go to learn more about you and what you do?
1: Thank you. Uh, my principal website is sabenhoward.com, And what's the other one?
3: Sabenhowardsculpturestudio.
1: Sabenhowardsculpturestudio, And if you just Google it, sabenhoward on the web, it's a ton of stuff that will pop up. And your podcast is, I'm really happy that you asked me to do this um, in a long format because then I could share some of my philosophy of life with others and I think that's really important not to to be isolated I think it's very important to share
2: I agree it's very important to be able to have particularly as an artist working with classical forms to be able to say why am I doing what I'm doing what's going on behind the scenes because there's lots of other ways that you could be making art but that you're making art you know from a style that's 500 years old 600 years old And doing it so excellently, people need to hear this.
1: Well, I'm really not. I'm trying to like make something archaeological, right? And I'm I'm not trying to resuscitate the past in any way. That's the thing. I'm trying to play it forward. And the the Renaissance and Greco-Roman art for me are more of a grammar that I can work in. It's a form and a structure that I could then be creative in. To me, that's like I'm blessed that I found this. Because otherwise, I don't want to return to being a teenager. That was not a good time. <laughs> right. So, yeah.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me on. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. And I'm I'm greatly honored to speak to you. And I'm looking forward to seeing the sculpture as it evolves and in its completed form.
3: I'll to the studio. I,
2: would be, I would like to have you to the studio when you like. I would, yes. I would love to come to the studio. By the way, the voice in the back for everyone listening is, uh, is
1: Sabin's wife, Tracy. Yes. She's a novelist in her own right. She's um, published in 12 countries. I I think it's 12 and she's done 13 novels. 13 books. 13 books. Yeah.
2: When you guys also collaborated on a book called, I think it was called The Art of
1: Life, right? Yes, we did. Yeah. Tracy wrote that. Yeah. It's about my sculpture.
3: Well, you told me what to say.
1: She says, I told her what to say. (laughs) She's playing opinions herself. Don't get her wrong.
3: (laughs)
2: For sure. No, I'll, I'll link everyone in the show notes to Tracy's work as well so they can see not just uh, her writing and your sculpture, but also what you guys produce together.
1: Ron, she's a driving force.
2: I would love to. I think she and I would have a lot to talk about as well.
1: Very smart woman.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> the hero's journey. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> yeah.